Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright. Thanks for joining us for our continuing conversation on the Patricia Witcher vehicle, The Avengers. <laughs> That's right. Today, we're talking about Minute 137, which begins with second unit director John Mahaffey and ends with tech viz artist Nick Nicholson. Back on the show, we have Tommy Metz III. Hello, Tommy. Hey! I don't know who that guy is. (laughs) Thank you for having me back. How was 136? It was big. (laughs) It was a very Thanos-y. Very Thanos-y, Very thanos Good, good. Okay. Uh, First question for you two. um, Thoughts on Soundgarden. Are you Soundgarden fans? No. Mm. <laughs> I don't like that whole kind of, I don't know what you would call that sound. What would you call that sound? I'll make this an actual question. That type of music, that, like, that like over, yeah, it's that like guitar overdrive uh, yeah. metal kind of sound. I don't know much of Soundgarden. I don't listen to Soundgarden. Occasionally, there's like a guitar playing instructional video uh, either by or about somebody in Soundgarden, and it's fun. But no, I don't care for the song. I I think it's weirdly... I don't know. How does it get into this movie? Yeah. I guess as I was looking at the credits for this and I was rewatching of this, it, I was very much reminded, oh, I guess we haven't ended with that point where random songs still end up in credits just to help sell albums. Because this <laughs> very much feels like we just need to find a group that needs some work. Well, let's let's get them to write a song that we can throw on and maybe get more people buying the album because it just uh, uh, and what's the name of the song? This is called Live to Rise. Yeah. I don't even like the title. Yeah. Sing to dance. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not a great song and actually this was one of those songs that was released on an album of music that was inspired by the film as they say, which I you know, I don't know. Are they ever really inspired? Like do people actually go that movie inspired me to write this song? Like I don't know. They always sell it that way but I don't know. But but the, it's always just about like, don't let them defeat us. Like, it's very broad and it could be about anything. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the lineup of artists that showed up on the album. Soundgarden, Shine Down, Rise Against, Papa Roach, Black Veil Brides, Wayland, Red Light King, Bush, Evanescence, Pusher Jones, Buck Cherry, Five Finger Death Punch, and Bomb. <laughs> wow so i've i've heard of most of those bands and you have yeah yeah i have but i i mean i don't really listen to them but they sound like the the same list of bands on a lot of inspired by soundtracks like yeah. there has got to be there is a podcast buried in here about the mystery of who produces these inspired by albums hmm. that i would listen to eight part investigative kind of a thing by Dave Holmes. And and yeah, it's like, this is, I, I just feel like this is the sort of deal that their agents, like these bands' agents, are pushing to get them onto these albums because it's just going to help get their name out there more. But it just, I don't know, when you actually are listening to it, I'm like, huh, I don't know, Red Light King? I don't, it like, feels very just lawyers talking to agents. No one in Marvel's like, we got Papa Roach! Ooh, five-finger <laughs> death punch! <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, it's so strange that they uh, kind of push this stuff out there. But that's what we're listening to uh, for the next few minutes. So (laughs) kick back and enjoy, everybody. (laughs) 
Um, before we get into the credits, I did want to talk a little bit about credit spacing, because I do think that it's kind of interesting how they decide how much space to leave between names. Do either of you, are, are either of you familiar with this? As far as like, if certain people like a first assistant director will get like its own, almost like its own screen. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I just wanted to redefine the question. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how that's done. But I'm sure it's incredibly legally binding. So who decides it? An attorney somewhere? Is that what we're saying? I, well, I'm not exactly sure who actually does the deciding of that. I don't know if it's agents. I don't know if it's based on your role. You'll get your own screen. And they come up with that kind of as they're putting together contracts for people. But there are certain roles where, yeah, they get an entire screen to themselves. And when it's a scroll, that's how you'll know. Because they'll as it's scrolling by, as soon as their name hits the middle... Technically, that fills the screen, and then as it kind of continues going, the next name pops up underneath, and then that name will end up potentially getting its own screen. But you can always tell because if you do a freeze frame of it, as long as it's on the screen all by itself, then it gets then that's kind of the right um, the thing. So John Mahaffey gets kind of a screen because he's first. Then we get this list of people who have like, I don't know, five or six lines between them. So John Mahaffey ends up sharing it with Leanne Stonebreaker and Patricia Witcher. How, how like they just have a third of a screen, like worth of credit. Like, yeah. And so a third right. of weight. the first five names here each get about a third of the screen. Yeah. And so I don't again, I, I'm not exactly sure how they're determining who gets what and it, what sort of contract negotiations. I'm sure it all boils down to how how well you negotiate your contract to get all of this. But each of them get a third of the screen. And then the eight people after that get one tenth of the screen. And so and then from there, it kind of boils down to kind of just people just then it's kind of the regular credits. But I always think that's interesting to look at, like, is that a deal that that person got because they had to take a pay cut? And they said, look, we'll, we we need you to take a pay cut on this, but we'll give you your own screen at the end. I mean, who knows? There are all sorts of these sorts of negotiations on the back end to come up with this stuff. I know it's not appropriate for this conversation or apropos to this conversation, but when we were doing it for 30 nights of Sex to Save Your Marriage, the film that I directed, it was just me in the post room yeah, and watching him just type it up. Like there was no one. It was interesting that there was anything. so much talk about the beginning credits, no talk about the ending credits. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. What did you end up doing? Like, did you have like a schema? It was. Like... Yeah, I just copied other credits. Okay. Yeah, like I course. watched two different movies and saw the order that they put stuff in and just wrote it all out for our post guy who just typed it up in front of me. It was very <laughs> non-ceremonial. <cool. laughs> yeah. no, it was very just like, and I was like, this is taking too long. And he was like, okay. Like, <laughs> you want to go get a burger? He was taking too long. Like, I was just like, can you go faster? He's like, how about now? And I was like, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was, uh, because I'm in, uh, when I was working at John Woo's company, I'm in all the credits of all of his films because I was a part of Lion Rock. And you just submit it to the studio. Yeah. There's no talking for us. We just submit it to the studio. And then, yeah. Well, and that's the interesting part because there are some typos in the credits and again you know it's the people who end up putting it together they have to go through all the different things reading people's handwriting trying to decipher how you want your name credited like anytime you've had to work on a film and you fill that out like how do you want your name credited and they i don't know there's some legalese in there like we'll try to make sure we get it to look just like this but oftentimes that's why you'll end up with some typos and things like that and then there are people like i i, I just don't understand how things like this happen i get it when it's bit parts but 
in our list of the people, uh, the one-tenth screens, our fourth person on that list, associate producer David J. Grant, isn't credited on IMDb. As a like an associate producer, how does that happen? Or did he pull himself off of it? Like, I don't know exactly how that happens, but this is a person who was associate producer on Thor, associate producer on Thor of the Dark World, co-producer on Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Shang-Chi. What if the TV show, Thor Love and Thunder, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, like is still co-producer on a lot of these projects all the way up to guardians of the galaxy 3 this year yet for the avengers his credit did not make it onto imdb that's fascinating yeah isn't that peculiar yeah it just i i wish i knew if there was a story because you can you know try to get your credits removed if you don't think that it was appropriately credited but in this case usually they have those people who will like verify like if it's in the credits it will show up here and I just I find that peculiar. But this is one of several that we'll be talking about this week. Did you uh, you mentioned typos? Did you are there any notable typos in here? Like, is it Tom Hiddleston or something like that? (laughs) (laughs) I've got a typo coming up. Maybe a typo. I have a big mystery in minute 138. Oh, spoiler alert. Get ready for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. um, This is, you know, this set of credits. We really it's it's kind of the top level people a lot of our not quite above the line but certainly people who are the upper echelons of everything you know we're starting with our second unit director going through all the upms first ad a lot of the supervise supervisorial roles the producer roles um and then we get into the cast uh stunts all the way into the core team of visual effects um that's largely what we're looking at in this minute And um, what we decided that we thought would be interesting to do is we'd each pick a name and just talk about that particular person a little bit uh, from this minute. So who would like to start? Mine's the worst. I mean, not the worst. No, not the worst. (laughs) I picked Robert Dowdy Jr. And we're like, (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I just want to tell you my, my strategy, because I some of the people that I picked, and we've talked about this, there aren't, isn't a lot in terms of their bio, but I wanted the excuse to talk about what they do on the film with you guys who know better than me mm. uh, what they do on the films. And so I I started with a producer, second unit director or assistant director. And in this uh, for this film, he was second unit or assistant director, or is interesting to me, and that I want to follow up on, Lars P. Winther. Lars P. Winther. Now, Lars was born uh, on August 30th, 1969 in L.A. He's an Angelino by birthright. Uh, I think that means he owns a part of L.A. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. if you guys can figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he is this. He's one of those guys. And I know there are a lot of these that go back and forth, but he's one of those guys who uh, has spent a lot of time on Marvel stuff all the way back to uh, I think Iron Man 3 was the first thing that he did in 2013 uh, and he was associate producer there he's been associate producer on um, the uh, one shots associate producer on Winter Soldier on Ant-Man on Captain America Civil War and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 Ant-Man and the Wasp he was co-producer Captain Marvel co-producer and then DC he moves over to the suicide 
co-producer, Ooh. Peacemaker, the TV sh- series producer, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So he feels very much to me like a James Gunn associate, right. that he's just following around uh, James Gunn. So he started at Marvel, met Gunn, and moved on to this other thing. So that is uh, Lars Winter. And I wonder if you guys could tell me wh- how you get a credit where you are an either-or second unit or assistant director it that says gets the translated word or in, in the, imdb in imdb it does well in in the credits it lists him as first assistant director that's interesting because it uh, so it's wrong in imdb i picked him when he was first assistant director and i'm curious how that happens well i'm scrubbing through because i'm going down because sometimes uh people end up doing multiple roles depending on different departments and i'm wondering I don't know. Did you notice his name pop up multiple times in the credits? Because I know sometimes that happens. Yeah, I scrubbed it and I didn't see it, but it's very small. <laughs> so many names. <laughs> and I did not spend time on it. Of names <laughs> right in a row. Did you notice how close they are together? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, he's the, I mean, it looks like first assistant director he, uh, for a lot of his early stuff. So how do you determine, so a first assistant director, right, is, my understanding is a first AD is the director's right hand, right? And they handle everything from shooting schedule and coordinating all the departments and making sure the set is running efficiently and, uh, like, they kind of run the set. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, they're kind of the barrier between the director and everybody else. Okay. In effect. And and they run all of the logistics so the director is supposed to be able to concentrate on creativity. Okay. They're generally the person who will make sure everything is set for like getting the shot ready to go, the keeping on schedule. And as soon as the shot's ready, like they will make sure everything's ready so that the the, the director can call action. And I have heard second AD, that would be the first AD, but for the first AD. So the first AD's first AD is the second AD. Yes. Well, they all have separate roles, though. So the second AD is largely going to be building the schedule for the director every day and running it back and forth, making sure they've got everything show- in the place where it needs to be and, uh, and getting approval from the first AD to make sure that they can, for the next day, get everything out um, so everybody knows what they need to be doing the next day. Is it fair to assume that the assistant directors do more administrative work than any actually directing of actors. Is there a directing of actors involved with any of these roles? Background. Yeah. Okay. Right. Extras. And it's, it's not directing like, I need to see more emotion here. It's not like directing like that. It's but on this mark, you have to go from there to there. And then exactly. you'll cross this way and you'll cross this way. It's like crowd crowd control. Yeah, they're one of the hardest leaps they say, I mean, it's just sort of like a cliche, but the hardest leaps in Hollywood is to go from first assistant director to director. That even though there's so they're so close in title and stuff that it's nearly impossible. Because, because it's just, such a dramatically like, different job. Practically. It is. It really is. Like the the assistant director's jobs, it's so uh, technical and logistic related that I think there's a it really is kind of like a directing job that has no creativity involved to a certain extent. And so they just have to make sure everything happens so that the director can kind of pull the creativity out of it. Which is why it's so interesting to me that so many of these titles go from first AD, second AD to co-producer, associate producer, producer. 
Well, that makes more sense to me. Like an AD has much more of that mindset in the world of producing than directing. So in a, in a way, I can I can understand that leap better than the the assistant director becoming a director. Well, that is certainly the direction that Lars Winter took and uh, is involved in a lot of projects that I I certainly really enjoy and have a lot of fun with. And so uh, good taste, Lars P. Winter. I really res- respect that uh, position. Yeah. It's really changed. It used to, like when I sort of started in Hollywood, it was really known as like a drill sergeant. Like sometimes they were like the biggest bully or like the bad guy, they were the bad person, so the director could be seen in a good light. That has really shifted over the years in that there's just no reason to be screaming at everyone. And it's become a very, a much more calm, not calm, but like nice position. It became very out of fashion to go around screaming at everybody. But it even happened, one of my first short films, Adam and Evelyn, the one where I met friend of the show, Mandy Kaplan, we had a first AD there who was, he was nice, but he was a yeller. And one of his big lines is if we were running on him, he goes, why are we not rolling? What is keeping <laughs> us from rolling? And then he'd point at me and go, any second now, he's going to yell action and we're going to start rolling whether you're ready or not. <laughs> and I was always like, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. And then, like, yeah. And then first assistant director, yeah, you just don't really do that that much. And when I've been like on sets for like really big, movies or TV shows and stuff like this. It's just a calmer. They definitely make it harder to work when you have that sort of AD, which I, th- I think I, it's I think it's a good thing that there's been kind of a shift away from that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, being on that sort of set, it, it just makes it hard. And, uh, you know, it's it's I don't know, it takes kind of some of the fun away. And, and, you know, it's hard. Also, I mean, the director also can be really pushing the AD to get stuff done like, you know, I mean, I've kind of worked in both situations where sometimes the director is like pushing the AD. Why is this not ready? Why are we not here? And the AD is like scrambling, trying to keep up with the director who's like pushing for stuff and constantly changing stuff. And the AD has to kind of match that. And if it's a director who is changing things like, oh, what if we do this over here? And then suddenly the AD is like, we got to get that person out of wardrobe now because they want them on set. It's like it can be a, a real difficult challenge when you have a director who doesn't really kind of understand that there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes just to make these things happen one small shift you can change the world like what we say like that's what you say on set is like this is the world this is the 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 direction that we're facing and stuff and just shifting it a teeny bit sends every position into hysterics yeah good name pick pete all right who's next i'll go i have a i have a actor i have a cast person it's the name is Damien Poitier, which I enjoy the name a lot. Uh, he plays man number one. <laughs> and that was such an illustrious uh, title. I wanted to look it up. He's an African-American actor who has over 75 acting and stunt credits to his name, including he does a lot of numbered roles. He's hero Merc number one in Captain America Civil War, henchman number six in The Hangover 3. He plays his own name, Poitier, in a movie that I just watched, Jarhead. Oh. and. He is mostly known for one thing, and that's man number one. Do you guys have a guess who man number one might be? Well, we do, because we just talked about it in our last minute. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) He totally did. (laughs) And I thought I was so clever. 
<laughs> right. He is the cameo as Thanos at the very end of the first Avengers film before he was actually fully replaced by Josh Brolin in Guardians of the Galaxy. So, yeah, he was the original Thanos when you just sort of see parts of him. OG. Yeah. OG. Yeah. Such and I looked him up. He, he, quote, is unsure if he is related to Sidney Poitier, but knows that their ancestors hail from the same island. I found wow. that on the Internet. All right. Very interesting. Well, I was really excited about that, and then I forgot about one minute one thirty six. So never mind. <laughs> it's okay, but you know, I'm I'm thrilled that we got to talk about him a little more because, as somebody who does kind of pop up in these bit parts, it's just nice to again, you know, praise the work they do because a lot of times it's uh, especially in a film like this where you're completely CG'd over. Nobody really knows that that was this person, you know. So right. Awesome. All right, Andy, who you got? All right. For me, I ended up, um, you know, fairly high on the, the list early in the minutes. So one of our big names is the ILM visual effects supervisor, Jeff White. And, uh, you know, as you know, this kind of world of these big effects movies, I wanted to look at, uh, you know, somebody fairly prominent. And Jeff White certainly fits the bill there. Uh, Jeff White has been nominated for two Oscars, in fact, uh, for kong skull island for visual effects and this film for best visual effects and actually won a technical achievement award and this is uh, part of the reason that i wanted to talk about him because he along with several other people at ilm developed a program called block party which is designed specifically for procedural rigging for characters in the world of computer generation, which I was like, what What does all of this mean? Because I really didn't have any understanding as to what it was talking about. But, like but Block Party... It's it's kind of uh, like that, but what it does it's it's this this it's the the character technical directors would end up using this as they're working on creatures, and what it does is it's this rigging system that actually they use to help move the characters. So. They uh, kind of incorporate how it's like how it's going to move their body and everything. So every character would end up kind of having its own unique body. Uh, as I found on this website, Block Party streamlines the rigging process through a comprehensive connection framework, a novel graphical user interface, and volumetric rig transfer, which has enabled ILM to build richly detailed and unique creatures while greatly improving artistic productivity. So it's just really helped bring anything that CG generated these different characters uh, helps bring them to life. Huh. That's interesting. I'm still yeah. having trouble understanding what it does. Not that you haven't done a wonderful job. I, well, I, I don't have a full understanding either. I, I yeah. have been trying really hard <laughs> as I read through all it of sounds this. It's like a mix of like motion control or yeah. right. green screen. Okay. Interesting. Not necessarily cool. the green screen, but just like it's like the rigging system that they build into it. So they can get the motion control and get the characters doing what they want Got them it. to do in an easier way. Because I remember in the past, like back in the early days when you would see like bloopers of like Shrek or something and they have the character walk off screen, but only part of him walks off screen because his body parts weren't quite connected all the way or something, you know, like that sort of weird thing. I think a lot of it has to do with that. So, uh, but yeah, Jeff White uh, has been at ILM 
since 2002, started as a creature technical director doing this sort of work and has worked on films like Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Lemony Snicket, Series of Unfortunate Events, War of the Worlds, uh, Revenge of the Sith, and uh, got into the Transformers films and, um, and then has also done a lot of these, um, the Marvel films. So, yeah. Cool. That's Jeff White. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, impressive roster of people for this minute. But, I mean, you know, there's a lot of a lot of names this minute. We're not going to talk about all of them, just those three. Uh, any last uh, notes about this set of credits from, any, from either of you? Uh, it turns out I am a fan of Soundgarden now. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening to it the entire time, and this, it's a banger. <laughs> well, good. Uh, I can't wait until you listen to the rest of the album and fill us in. Yes, especially the entire Inspired By album, too. That's going to be important. All right. All right. Well, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk with Tommy about Minute 138. Tommy, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. And Pete, thanks as always. Oh, tomorrow, celebrating more multi-column layouts. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, True Believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>